jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Today's class is going to focus on the virtue of teshuva, or of making a change in your life, the virtue of turning things around. And the premise of today's class, as with many of the other classes, is that the Mishnah is written in a very, very concise way. And if one examines the Mishnah properly, we're going to be able to have a deeper understanding of the Torah's message. So the Mishnah is talking about creation. And the Mishnah tells us that that with ten utterances Hashem created the world. The premise is that if the Torah takes the time to communicate that to us, that it doesn't just say God created the world, but it goes into some detail. Not a tremendous amount of detail, but some detail. And we divide it up into ten individual times where we say, And God said... So there's something that we need to learn from that. There's a lesson. What might that be? And furthermore, The world could have been created with one utterance. God could have said, It should be a world. And the same way God could say, There should be light. And there should be a sea. And there should be a heavens. And all of a sudden, the process was initiated where all these things took place. God could have said, there should be a world. And with one utterance, one divine proclamation or command, all of a sudden, the world comes into being. So why is it that God chose to say it ten different times? And only by saying it ten different times, did the world come into being? So the answer was, to exact payment from the wicked, who destroy the world, which was created by Sodom Amores. And to give reward to the righteous who are Mekayim, who sustain the world that was created with this much effort. And we talked about this in great detail in the previous classes. We talked about the fact that why is it that God would start Why would Hashem speak about a negative and only subsequent to the negative, only then focus on the positive? So he talked about the idea, it doesn't say lahanish, it doesn't say to punish, it says lihipara, it means to exact payment. Which means that Hashem waits for people to do tshuva. And today we're going to focus on that theme, but on the virtue of teshuva. On the virtue of what is great about turning your life around. So number one, and this will be our first point of departure, this is going to be a technical analysis. B'maymer echad Hashem could have created the world with one utterance. And God said and the world came into being. When we say that, is that only something that could have happened? Is that an opportunity that God forfeited? Like sometimes people say, you know, I could have been a hairdresser. I could have been a singer. If only I would have taken the right course and I would have said yes when I was asked. Things could have been very different. Everybody has a story like that. Everybody could have been something incredible. Right? Either yes or not. But everybody likes to think that. <laughs> so the question is, when it says, Is that a past tense thing? Is that a chance that God passed up on? Or is that something that God could actively still do? In principle, the world that was created with ten utterances could be created with one utterance. What would you say? God doesn't miss chances, right? So if God could have done it, He could still do it today. So when we have that emphasis where God could do it with one utterance, but God did do it with ten utterances, there has to be some type of message, a distinction between ten and two. 
What's the difference between creating the world in ten utterances or creating the world in one utterance? What difference does it really make? What difference does it make? It spreads it out and therefore this world would look the same. If the world made with ten utterances would look different than a world made with one utterance, so there wouldn't be The Mishnah couldn't say Hashem could have created the world with ten utterances or one utterance because the world of ten utterances doesn't look like a world that's created with one utterance. So obviously the world would have looked exactly the same. We would not know any difference. So what does it mean that God created the world? What, is the, what are the two standards here? Or what are the two options? There's the ten utterance option and the one utterance option. The Maimar Echad or the Asara Mamaris. What's the difference? What does it represent to us? Let's use the metaphor. Let's build on the metaphor that you offered. You said the difference in making ten steps or one step. How do you do one step that would usually take ten steps? What do you have to do? You jump. You have to leap forward. Some people have an exceptional gift of long jumping, right? They're in the Olympics. Which is another thing altogether where people show they could be even stronger than animals. So the virtue is you get a gold medal, not for being the best human being, but for being the best animal. Right? Because the animals still jump better. Nobody agrees with that. It's just a... The Olympics would be a question of uh, debating or the virtue of humanity. Nope. <laughs> I could have an easier time relating to it. But okay, be that as it may. Lots of people like to see people act like animals. That's what a lot of these reality television shows are, right? Who could be the bigger animal? Who could be more selfish? Who could be more mean? More vindictive? And that's the winner. It's a great message to give to everybody. Not the Torah's message. So the Torah's message is that it's possible to achieve sometimes the same thing in ten steps or in one step. So, what will we be talking about when we talk about one step or ten steps? Let, let's take any metaphor of achievement. Yes, I'm sorry. So, we are not God, we are human beings. We sure are human beings. God can do in one step, obviously we cannot. Ah, but what God can do in ten steps, we also can do. Because no. God's ten steps and God's one step is commensurate to our ten steps or our one step. I'm not taking it literally. So, it's ten steps meaning... It's, it's a metaphor. Nothing is to be taken literally and everything is literal. In other words, if you talk to a child about ten steps, the child is two years old, or the child is a year and a half old, and the child's learning how to walk, what do ten steps mean? Ten steps mean ten steps. Actually lifting up one foot and putting the other foot in front of it. When you talk to somebody who opens up a new computer and he finds, okay, there's ten steps to set up of your computer. It's not a question of putting one foot in front of the other, but it is. Because you first have to put the computer out of the box before you plug it in. Right? So the metaphor is the same. We can use the word step has many, many different meanings. Ten steps is an apt metaphor. Ten steps for God or one step for God would have to equal ten steps for us or one step for us. Now you said a very important word. You said normative. Normative means that there is a normal or usual way to get somewhere. For example, let's talk about wealth. How do you usually become wealthy? Inheritance? <laughs> you know what you, you remind me of? The little boy. The little boy who asked his Zaidi, very, very wealthy family. He said, Zaidi, how did you become so rich? So the grandfather says, well, it was 1936. And I went and bought an apple for 10 cents. And they polished it all day. And that night I sold it for 12 cents. He says, really, Zadie, what did you do the next day? So the next day I bought two apples for six cents. I polished them a whole day and I sold each one for 12, for 12 cents. 
He says, that's incredible. And then what did you do? He says, that then my great uncle died and left us with a million dollars. So there's a difference between a gradual, slowly getting somewhere, or one giant leap forward. Both are possible. In, in the world that we live in, we know of people who have become wealthy fabulously overnight. Maybe because they won a lottery ticket. Some guy in the slot machines yesterday in Niagara Falls won $5 million, right? There was, there was enough people that lost $10 million in the last five years for him to win $5 million and the casino still made $5 million. But, but the fact is, he walked away very wealthy. Is that normal? No, it's not normal. Do you think that people who experience that kind of boon or profit are always normal? Very often not. Very often they go crazy. They fly off the handle because the newfound wealth, they don't know how to deal with it. But I'll tell you a little secret. I know people who made their money slowly, and they still went crazy. <laughs> so there's no guarantee. A lot of money makes people very crazy. It, 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 it very often happens. Unless you're very sharing and very charitable and very humble, you can go crazy from a lot of money. I should only have such problems. <laughs> but we all understand that it's possible to do things incrementally. And it's possible to do things in some sort of wondrous twist of fate or twist of luck. Things can change for you dramatically. Everybody understands that. Now the question is, are we ever able to control that? Is it possible for us to initiate or instigate this sudden leap forward? Or is it just whatever comes your way? Does it have any parallel in the concept of serving God? So the answer is yes, it does. The normal way to have any relationship is achieved through what? Slow steps, constant relationship building. So you want to get to know somebody, you talk to them, you spend time with them, you do things together. The more experiences you have, the more it builds a strong and a positive relationship. Everybody saw Fiddle on the roof. So what, is, what does she want to know? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do I love you? I don't know if I love you. They never even thought about it. It wasn't even an issue. They stepped. Who thought about love? Who thought about survival? But the truth is, did they love each other? I'm sure most of those couples did love each other. There was no divorce rate in, back in the temple. You got married and you survived. It just worked. And when somebody lost a spouse, they were crushed. How did you sometimes find out if there was real love? When there was a lack of something. But in everyday life, they didn't feel it. There may not have been an actual passionate existence. It was kind of a, shall we say, a very dull ordinary, boring, regular existence. Was there love there? Yeah, there was love. It wasn't necessarily provoked to reveal itself in a passionate manner. So usually, a relationship happens slowly. There's actually very, very wise lyrics. You know, I wash your clothes, I bathe your clothes, I do everything for you that I love you. I mean, like, come on, we've been in the same entity for so long. I mean, what's, what's even the question? On the other hand, Hollywood likes to highlight not that kind of love affair, which is very boring, but these sudden love affairs, right? Where somebody comes out of nowhere, love at first sight, as if it ever happens. You know, it's a... It does. Okay. It's all Zainal say. Or these wondrous, incredible things. Somebody just meets somebody and they connect and this powerful, passionate relationship develops out of nowhere. It is possible. Is it the normative way? How many of those relationships last? You never know, because the movie ends right then. <laughs> the boring part that I'll show you. The, the, the sequel is when they fall out of love and in love with somebody else, and then it's, then it's exciting again. But just like the ordinary, mundane continuum of life, nah, nobody focuses. That's not exciting. That's not the kind of thing that's called entertainment. 
And the movies are made to entertain people because they have to make money and that's the bottom line. The bottom line is not truth or reality, but if reality makes money good, so we sell that. So we have these two types of ways of developing a relationship. If you could choose, which would you prefer? If you could develop a normative relationship slowly but surely in a healthy manner, would you choose that? Or would you choose this wondrous, exciting, mind-altering, life-changing experience? You say once in a lifetime to have the latter would be great, right? If only once, huh? Let's take a week out of your mundane existence and one-time experience. So here's the good news. The good news is you can. With God, that is. You can. With God. So when we talk about serving Hashem, when we talk about having a, a relationship with God, what do you think relationships of God are made of? What's the stuff they're made of? You think love is part of it? Yeah, it should be part of it. You should love God. Love means a sense of closeness, a sense of oneness, where something is very much a part of you. You think about it a lot. It's on your mind. It makes you feel better. These are the kind of things love does for us. Do we love God? We should. Do we fear God? We don't, want to, we don't have to fear God as, I'm afraid, but we don't want to lose that relationship. Something we value. Something we're always afraid of tarnishing. So, there's a little bit of that in every relationship too. Every relationship has love and fear. There's the positivity, I enjoy the relationship. There's also the, the fear or awe or respect for the relationship. Where I'm going to be careful not to tamper or be flagrant with this relationship because it's very meaningful to me. So, a relationship with God, what else do you think it would have? Trust. Trust. You're supposed to trust in God. Very good. We're supposed to respect Hashem. Correct. It's a sin for us to disrespect God or artifacts that are godly. So something like a Torah, when a Torah walks in, everybody should stand up, kiss the Torah, pay homage to the Torah. We respect God and representations of godliness. What else is every relationship made up of? We should get inspiration from God. Let me talk about something mundane now. What's every relationship made up of? What happens if your husband doesn't take out the garbage, doesn't say good morning? Let's, let's, before, the, forgive, before the anger and forgiveness What's the relationship made of in a positive sense? Doing things Doing things for each other right? And little thoughtful things Sometimes very meaningful You open your briefcase at work And a little note is there It's very meaningful sometimes Or you come home and find flowers And say wow that's very meaningful right? But it could be a whole bunch of little things And you don't even realize sometimes How important those little things are Until they're suddenly missing And relationships are made up of those little things What do we call those little things Vis-a-vis God those little things. What are they called? Mitzvahs. That's what mitzvahs are. Mitzvahs are. It's a relationship with God. right? So we're doing things for God. God's supposed to be doing things for us. Everybody's heart is pumping here today, Baruch Hashem. Everybody's lungs are functioning. Everybody's kishkas are working. You made it over here this morning. We have a warm, safe, secure environment to come together, to spend time, to study Torah. We have lots of gifts from God. Many of us have children. Some of us have grandchildren. Some of us have spouses. I mean, we have lots of things to thank Hashem for. So there's a relationship that goes on. We're supposed to do for God, God's supposed to do for us, and that's what makes the relationship work. So in a normative sense, how should a Jew feel close to God? You want to feel close to God? How should you do it? Live it. You live it, you feel it. If it's something you do all the time, if you're regularly coming to study, you're regularly coming to show, you're regularly sharing and caring, and you're doing the things that God wants you to do, you're going to feel God part of your life. It's inevitable. What happens if a person doesn't do any of those things? You feel estranged. The Jew feels isolated, lost, assimilated, disengaged. These are words many people feel with regard to the Jewish community, Torah, or God. It doesn't mean anything to them. Some people regret it, some people don't. But they feel lost. 
They don't feel a sense of belonging. They don't feel a sense of participation. They don't feel like they're actively involved in this relationship with God. Does it ever happen that somebody like that gets very excited about something? Or comes to synagogue and has a wonderful experience? Or suddenly feels very inspired or proud to be Jewish? Have you ever seen anything like that happen? Everybody's seen that happen. Everybody's seen something, all of a sudden somebody got very moved, or very emotional, or very involved. So now, why did that happen all of a sudden? Why all of a sudden did somebody get so connected? The answer is, you have a neshama inside, and the neshama, right? So what happens sometimes with a... Uh, we should never know from this. A husband and wife are not having a very good relationship. And they're not getting together and they're not talking and it's not happening. And all of a sudden one day something clicks. That has happened to people. I didn't say it lasted. But something, or somebody was actually looking forward to seeing somebody. A little bit of passion came from somewhere. It happens, right? It's not the normative way. It's not the way, it's not the ideal way. The question is how do you make it last? Maimar Echod and Asarim Amara symbolize two kinds of relationship that a Jew has with God. My merechad is slow steps. Pardon me. My Constant steps. Ten utterances reflect the ten powers of the neshama. As we talked about earlier. So the soul has ten faculties and you're using every faculty to be connected to Hashem in every way possible. So you're eating, you and God have a relationship. Certain things you're eating, certain things you're not because God wants you to eat or not to eat those things. The way you go to work, certain days you don't go to work because God wants you not to go to work in those days. The way you speak to other people, you speak a certain way because God wants you to speak a certain way. And so on and so forth. These are the steps. Constant steps that we always have to work on. Like every other relationship, make it happen. Step by step, slowly but surely. And then there's a time when a Jew can suddenly feel a relationship with God. Why? Why it's just like this. A a sense sometimes of deep regret. A sense of longing. A sense of something missing. That can create a very strong passion. And in one moment, all of a sudden, the Jew who's been so disconnected and disengaged feels very, very connected. And feels very excited and very inspired. He takes a look and says, this is not fair. How did they get here? How are they next to me? I've been working on this now for 20 years. And all of a sudden, this person vaults in from nowhere? How, did, how are they so excited about davening? What am I doing wrong? The answer is nothing was done wrong. It's a different method. It's a different way of serving Hashem. Now that way of serving Hashem is called Teshuvah. Teshuvah, by the way, makes no sense. That's the logic of Teshuvah. You did something wrong? Yes. You regret it? So? Did you do something wrong? Imagine if you can that an Avera or a Mitzvah, a sin, or a good deed is, is something real. It's not a cute thing. It's, not, it's something real. So for example, you embarrassed your friend publicly. Terribly. Terrible, maybe you, you wound their the whole social standing. You said something which was just unforgivable. The next day, call up and says, Hi, hi Trudy, listen, I feel bad. That's nice, I feel bad too. <laughs> so I feel bad. Wonderful, I feel bad also. <laughs> you reversed it. You gave somebody bad advice, and they lost a lot of money. Say, so listen, I feel bad at the advice you gave you. That's very nice. <laughs> I'm glad you, I lost money, you feel bad? I feel bad too. Sometimes, ah, what's money? Sometimes you can do something which hurts somebody's child. Sometimes you can hurt somebody in a way which is irreparable. And you can't make up for what you lost. Something is gone, missing forever. So you meet them and say, listen, I, was, I want to tell you I really feel bad. That's great. So you forgive me? No. <laughs> what should I forgive you for? You make a gaping hole in my life and now you feel bad. What does feeling bad have to do with it? So imagine that doing a sin actually creates a gaping hole in the universe. 
You blasted a hole in the spiritual ozone layer. You did something very bad. You say, God, I feel bad. So what should God say? I feel bad too. What does God say? You feel bad? Wonderful. Okay, it's as if it never happened. That's the power of tshuva. It's as if it never happened. It gets even better. If you really, really feel bad, and you feel so bad that you now start serving Hashem with more fervor, not only is it not considered a demerit, not only is it not considered a negative, but if tshuva is done with enough passion, zidonot, the sins, nasalok zochiot, the demerits become merits. A negative thing becomes a positive. That's the logic to that. The Medrash says tshuva makes no sense. And the Medrash uses the following syntax of poetry. They ask wisdom. What should happen to the sinner? So, Chachma, a wisdom answered, the sinner should die in his, in his, in his, in his evil, with his sins. Hey, what does it mean he feels bad? You did something wrong, now suffer the consequences. Whatever you did, that's what you have to now live with. There's no way around it. What you did, you did. Shalu, it says then, they ask Torah. What should happen to the sinner? Torah says he should bring a sacrifice. Bring a sacrifice and Hashem will atone for him. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice would mean that you did something very special for somebody else. So you did something very bad. And now you sacrifice so when Adi Wei did something very special for them. So they can forgive you. Because although you did something very bad, you also did something very good. And in some magical way, even a pragmatic way, the good thing says, you know what, I'm ready to overlook the bad thing because you did something so nice for me. We do this all the time in relationships. Now, why is a sacrifice meaningful to God? That's a discussion for a different day. But imagine that it was. And indeed it is. Raza the Kurbana, the Zohar says the secret, the mystery of a sacrifice, is something that reaches the very essence of the mystery of God. Nobody understands it. It's not something logical. We cannot relate to or understand why a sacrifice is very meaningful, but it is. So a sacrifice is meaningful. You did something meaningful for God. You did something bad yesterday. You did something very good today. Okay. We'll patch things up. Then the Medrash says, Shaululah Baruch Hu. So they ask God, what should happen to the sinner? So Hashem says, Yasa Tshuva. He should do Tshuva. And that's it. He's kapha. Feel bad. What is Tshuva? Tshuva just means to feel bad. The t- typical definition of Tshuva means deep regret and resolve. Because deep regret always is followed by resolve. If you really regret something, you won't do it again. If you regret it, but you're going to do it again, you don't really regret it. So everybody regrets eating that piece of cake that was staring at them, right? <laughs> Especially when they get out of the, the, the scale the next day. But the funny thing is, a day later, they eat the cake again. So, so how much did you regret it? I mean, the cake still was good. <laughs> it's not entirely a regretful experience, right? Certain things it says tshuva can help for, but then we say go further that in, in some way tshuva can help for everything. As far as obtaining God's forgiveness. Now, the amount of tshuva that that takes is not easy. It's, a, it's an incredibly difficult type of tshuva to do. But yes, tshuva can happen. Tshuva can atone for just about any sin to cleanse any soul of the, of the filth or the dirt that it has absorbed as a result of its negative deeds. The neshama can be cleansed through tshuva. So tshuva really makes no sense. Tshuva is the greatest gift. Baal tshuva means a master of tshuva. You know, a lot of the words people use are sometimes inaccurate. People say, I'm a Baal tshuva. They say, are you a Baal Tshuva? I said, I hope one day I'll become a Baal Tshuva. A master of Tshuva? You know what it means, a master of Tshuva? 
Like Donald Trump is a master of real estate. <laughs> He's a master of real estate. Every Yukul who owns a few buildings is a master of real estate. Yeah, he dabbles in real estate. Right? A master is a big word. A Baal Teshuvah in the real sense, in, in what the word really means, is something incredibly unique. A Baal Teshuvah would mean somebody who did a very, very many bad things and became an absolute tzaddik, an incredibly righteous person. Relatively speaking, the borrowed term is Baal Teshuvah. Now here's something interesting. The Makkah and Shabale Teshuvah owned him in a place where returnees, those who made a U-turn, stand. Even a perfect tzaddik can't stand. Why? Because there's a power in the one step that is ahead of the many steps. There's a certain power in that. And in a certain sense, that power is greater than the tzaddik. The tzaddik can't reach the place where the Baal Tshuva went. And this is the virtue of Tshuva. There's something very, very unique that the Torah provides us with. So when we talk about creation, let's go back to the Mishnah. God created a world that would be sustained primarily through normative activity. The world is something that demands constant, regular, ongoing involvement in our relationship with Hashem. Okay, so why do we have to be told that? God could have created the world with one. He could have made a, a super world. Where an Ashama could come here, have one great challenge, and as a result of that one great challenge, both into the highest heavens. Why do you have to live a whole life? Why do you have to much as for 80, 90, 100 years, and then maybe, hopefully, you fixed up your Neshama? Let's come down here for a heavy-duty mission. You know, a James Bond move. Everybody gets thrown down here. You get six months to make fireworks happen, and then you go finished, go back up. Why does it have to be a slow progression? If the whole purpose of creation is just to perfect the soul, so let it be a, a one-two punch and that's all. Why does it have to be slow? So the Mishnah says, Number one, you still have a, a shot at the one-two punch. However, what does the Shoyim do? What does the wicked person do? In a literal sense, It destroys the world. In a deeper sense, means he destroys normalcy. He destroys or does away with the normal cause and effect. So usually in order for a person to have a relationship, it has to be slow. There has to be a progression. And eventually a great relationship is reached. The Russia comes along and says, I do away with all that. How are you going to have a relationship? Because in one moment of tshuva, he can reverse decades of misdeeds. So he's ma'abed olam. Olam means a normative order of things. And the Russia, in a positive sense, this is not negative, we don't start off with negative. The whole Mishnah comes to teach us about the virtue of tshuva. The Mishnah comes to teach us about the virtue of, if you haven't been doing what you should have done for the last 40, 30, 50 years, whatever it is. If you haven't been behaving, and you have done things wrong. So the Mishnah has a wonderful news for you. The news is that the world was created in a normative fashion to help the people who didn't live in a normative fashion. Because... You can be, Hashem exacts payment. Exacts payment means allows for an accelerated pace of return for the Shoyim, precisely because they did away with the world that was created with Hasad and Now, if you're a Tzadik, don't feel bad. Because <laughs> after all, Hashem did create the world in a normative fashion. Leaping, Sachar, Tevla Tzadikim, to give good reward to Tzadikim who are Mekayim, who sustain the world. So ideally, God doesn't want the world to be destroyed. God doesn't want things to fall to pot. He does want things to go in a normative manner. 
And that's why God gives us all kinds of mitzvahs and all kinds of days and hours and weeks and months. We have all this time, all these increments of time that are filled with opportunities so that we can make a difference in a normative way. But if a person suddenly feels that he hasn't been doing the right thing, and his heart is broken, and the person says, I want to I have a relationship with God, I want to turn things around. You're ma'abed asa'olam. You didn't want to. <laughs> you didn't use your opportunities. So I can do away with all that. All of the normative things, I can push that aside, and I can accelerate my pace, and I can have a relationship with Hashem nonetheless. These are two ways of serving God. So God created the world containing two different paths. Here's an interesting thing. Everybody wants Mashiach to come, right? The world's going to be perfect. So it says Mashiach can't come until the tzaddik does tshuva. The tzaddik, the perfect Jew, has to find a way to experience tshuva. And only then Mashiach can come. Because tshuva has the power to change the world more than anything else. And that's a subject in and of itself. So how does the tzaddik do tshuva? How do you do tshuva if you never did anything wrong? How do you return? What are you repenting for? And for this we need to have a deeper understanding of tshuva, which means to return. And to return could say, I'm going to go back to my true essence. I could have done more. I could have been better. It's not that I did something wrong. And this relates to two interpretations of the word chet. You know what chet is? Chet is a sin. But chet also has the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word chisaron. Chisaron means a lack. A lack. The lack of something. The void. Which means that sometimes a chet is a sin. You did the wrong thing. Sometimes it's not a question of a sin. It's a question of you could have done more. So for example, you met a long friend, that you had, a long time lost friend. You haven't seen him for ages. And you gave them a lukewarm welcome. You were very cordial, very polite. So they're upset. So what are you upset about? You didn't say hello. Yes, I did. You didn't offer me a coffee. Yes, I did. What are they upset about? I thought you were going to hug me and kiss me and, and, and take off work. And you didn't. You just went to work and said, it's so nice to see you. Hi, goodbye. See you later tonight. How could you do that to me? I'm your long-lost cousin. We used to be such good friends. You should have taken a whole week. Say, sorry. So I didn't do that. So the person's upset. Why are they upset? Somebody did something wrong to them. I have to go to work. I have things to do. Why are you upset about it? What are you angry at me for? What did I do wrong to you? So they'll answer, you didn't do anything wrong. But, but you didn't do what I expected. So a tzaddik could serve Hashem perfectly. Every mitzvah. Everything is pigeonholed. Every day is perfect. But then the question is, is that all? That's all the special tzaddik could have done? And that's how we understand the sin, like a sin of Meshul Rabbeinu, a sin of Sarai Meinu, a sin of Avram. Not in the typical sense they did something wrong. Tzaddikim don't do things wrong. The definition of tzaddik is a tzaddik doesn't have the struggle. Should I do the right thing? Should I do the wrong thing? Mm, let me think about this. Alright, today I'll do the right thing. A tzaddik doesn't have that struggle. The tzaddik's challenge is to serve Hashem with even greater fervor, which is called in the Zohar, Bechei And what does Teshuvah do? Teshuvah enables Bechei Teshuvah enables greater fervor. Because when do you appreciate warm weather? In July or in February? How many people go to Florida in July? A few. How many people go in February? A lot. A lot more. Why? Same nice weather. Go to Bermuda. Same nice weather in July. Same nice weather in February. Why is everybody running in February? Because when it's freezing cold outside, all of a sudden you start to appreciate it. When do we appreciate what we have? And we don't have it. And that's the idea. We'll go back to our fiddle on the roof. How do you know they're in love? 
God forbid somebody loses somebody and the whole life falls apart. You say, why did your life fall apart? I didn't know you were in love. So I didn't know either. <laughs> I didn't realize how much this meant to me. Sometimes you only find out how much something really is, value of something, when you don't have it anymore. Once they tell a story in the shtetl, there was an argument between the pauper and between the rich man. Every shtetl, right? had a big pauper and a big rich man. At least that's what they'd like you to believe. So the rich man says to the pauper, you are a bigger pig. You are a, a more self-engrossed, you know, sensual, seeking pleasure-seeking animal. And the rich man says, the poor man says, what, me? Me who has nothing? You, you're the chazer, he says. You're the pig. You're, you're steeped in your materialism. How dare you say that about me? So the rich man said, simple. If they put a decent lunch on the table today, you would pounce on it. Like a, like, like a tiger, you would eat it. So I would relax, take my napkin, cover my shirt, take my fork and knife, cut it slowly. They would have much more gusto in devouring the chicken than I would. So they have this big fight and they're yelling and screaming at each other. So where did they go? Who's going to resolve the fight for them? The rabbi. So they come to the shtetl rabbi and they have this whole thing. The, the, the poor man says, Yankel the rich man insulted me and he called me a chazer and he says I'm more involved and he's the biggest baltaiva. He is so steeped in his pleasures and his beautiful home and everything. The rabbi turns to the poor man. The poor man says, the, the rich man says, What? Look at Moshe the poor man. He insults me. And they're screaming and yelling. So the rabbi says, You know what? The ruling is the poor man is the bigger pig. How do you prove that? The rich man has a litmus test. Bring lunch and you see who goes who's more crazy. So the rich man, the poor rabbi said, yes, but tonight at dinner, we're going to serve black bread and herring to both of you and then we'll see who goes crazy. <laughs> Sometimes you don't realize what something is or how, much, how important it is to you until you're missing it. So the rich man says, I have no passion. I'm not involved. Oh, you're not involved. You can't live without it. The poor man may get excited when he grabs a hold of some extra materialism. But if it's gone, it's gone. Life goes on. So, passion very often is created by the lack of something. Absence makes the heart go fonder. Why would absence make the heart go fonder? That's ridiculous. Absence should make us further apart. Interestingly, absence doesn't. Absence and abstinence all of a sudden creates a desire. and creates a passion. So the reason is because human beings react that way. We only appreciate things tragically when we don't have them. That's when there's a passion. So the beauty of the sinner is that the sinner did the wrong thing. The sinner's life was empty. And since it was empty, when a person like that finally wakes up and says, no, 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 this is wrong. Life is not, what the, this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not what I wanted to do with my life. And then all of a sudden starts to engross themselves in the performance of mitzvahs and the study of Torah. Who has more passion? The person who returned. And therefore, there's a virtue and a beauty in what we'll call the Baal Tshuva. I once heard an interesting exchange. Somebody said, everybody calls him, oh, he's a Baal Tshuva. So how long do you call me a Baal Tshuva for already? He says, I'm already observing for 30 years. You say, you know what? Until you start speaking during davening, they call you a Baal Tshuva. <laughs> People who are born religious, they don't take davening that seriously. So this is what the Mishnah tells us. Hashem creates a normative world. But the reason He creates a normative world is that we can undo that normative world. And if we undo that normative world, we can vault ourselves in one giant leap, one giant step, and achieve what somebody else achieved very, very slowly and incrementally. Now, if that's not inspiring insofar as turning your life around, I don't know what is. This is great news for all of us. Every one of us has a lot of tshuva to do. And the good news is that Hashem made the world that way. He made the world in a way that there should need to be tshuva done. 
Because when tshuva is done, we're able to incredibly increase, exponentially advance our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and our spiritual prophets. And if you take a look at creation from the very beginning, Hashem put people in a situation where they had to sin. It was almost overwhelming. Adam and Eve they had this tremendous desire to sin. Why did God do that to them? Why give them a Yitzhahar altogether? Some other faiths, they came up with a new idea. There is, Yitzhahar is not God. That's God's enemy. But we believe, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elekeinu, Hashem Echad. Hashem Echad means there's nothing outside of God. So why did God create the Yitzhahar? What profit is there in the Yitzhahar? The answer is the Yitzhahar. And the challenges of the Yitzhahar enable us to reach a higher spiritual plateau. Either because we overcome the Yitzhahar, in that sense we're challenged. We're challenged so we pedal even harder. You know, like in those... Those treadmills, anybody go on them? The faster it goes, the more you have to run, right? The harder the travel is, the more energy you exert. I think the same concept of a, a bike, that you, you raise up the speed on the bicycle, and the harder it is to pedal, the harder you pedal, so the faster you go. And the same idea also would be going a step further. So what happens if somebody did do the wrong thing? If somebody did do the wrong thing, they can still accelerate things. And that's where the gift of tshuva comes in. And that takes us right into the second Mishnah. So the second Mishnah in... This chapter tells us about another ten. That interestingly, not only ten started off with creation, but from there there was Asara Deiris. There were ten generations, Me Adam, Vad Noach. From Adam all the way until a man called Noach. Everybody knows about Adam, Adam and Eve, right? The beginning of creation, the first human beings. Who was Noach? Noach and his family went on the big boat. Right? Hashem created the whole world. Well, it was hardly a cruise line. And it definitely wasn't a love boat. <laughs> there was two of everything, but they weren't allowed to be together. Right? Yeah, it says that there was, they, they slept in dormitories. There was bunks. The boys had barracks and the girls had barracks. There was, no, there was no togetherness. And that's why it says in the Chumash that they went in separately. It says, And his wife and, and the wives. So therefore, in the boat, there was no, no love boat. It didn't happen there. From all of the descriptions we have in the Gemara and the Medvish, life on the Teva was anything but a pleasure. It says Noah came out like he had aged exponentially. He was a broken person. He was sick and, and physically wasted because of the hard work. I mean, imagine running a whole zoo all by yourself. Put, put six people into the Toronto Zoo and they figure it out. Noah spent his whole day. They ran from animal to animal and the animal, he came late, the animal got angry at you. Everybody expected perfect service. And nobody was happy on that boat. But they were happy because they were saved. Everybody else died. Yeah. And at the end of the day, everybody wants to survive. So these were the survivors. Asara, what happened to the fish? They, they survived. That's because those in water were always more pure. Water represents purity in Judaism. Right? You go to the mikvah, you go into water. And water represents the waters that come forth from Gan Eden. And so the fish never sinned. In Kabbalah, the idea of Alma di Idgalia and Alma di Itkasya represent two worlds, which is the revealed world and the hidden world. The hidden world, in the metaphor, is everything beneath the sea. The revealed world is everything above ground. And in the spiritual dimensions, the revealed world represents a lower level than the hidden world, the concealed world. Right? So the deeper, more mysterious, that's the higher spiritual level. So therefore, everything it says, Kol the Gemara says everything that exists above ground exists also in the sea beneath the ground. Right? You have a seahorse and a sea lion. You have everything in the ground as well. You have mountains and valleys, but only it's hidden. The eye can't see it. The eye just sees water. And that represents in the higher spiritual levels, it's all hidden, although everything exists as well. The water thusly brings purity. The idea of fish also ward off the, eye, the evil eye. 
Could be. But there are, there are actually, I know of some certain Sephardic Jews who wear a fish on the necklace. A little, a little bejeweled fish because that, that words of evil life. And the eye of the fish is always open. And therefore we say it represents the mazel that's always open. And that's one of the reasons on Rosh Hashanah. When we're davening for a mazel like a new year, we go to running water. But there's a, a specification made that the running water should also have fish. Anyway, let's leave the fish alone. So we're dealing with people and people make problems. There was ten generations from Adam to Noah. Now why was there ten generations? Meaning there was ten generations until Hashem punished the world. The world just continued to degenerate. For ten generations. Until Hashem finally put an end to it. Why? And what lesson does that teach us? What does it mean for us today? So the Mishnah says, To show how Hashem does not react angrily. Or His anger is slow. So people misbehave, they misbehave, they misbehave. Eventually, there's going to be a day of judgment. Eventually, Hashem takes care of it. But Hashem is very, very slow to react. All of these generations were continuously degenerating, behaving in a negative way, making Hashem angry, infuriating God. And it took ten generations. Until finally, Hashem decided to undo creation and rebuild creation. Which was, by the way, one of the ideas of the Mabel. Why didn't God send fire and burn the whole world? The idea of the Mabel is pure purity, purification. And how many days and nights did it rain for? Forty. How many measurements called a saw, which is like a little less than two gallons, a drop more than two gallons. How many saw are in a mikvah? Forty. What shape are mikvahs made in? Almost always? The square. Because what is a square? What letter is that in Hebrew? A mem. A mem sofit is a square. So Mem saw, and the size of the mikveh, and the days of the Mabal are all interconnected. And the word mikveh starts with Mem. They were the Bavi and Zaydi. They were the only Bavi and Zaydi, and they had three, they had three sons who had married, each one had a wife. They were the only ones, that they were the sole survivors. So the sole survivors of the world were only Noach, but that was after ten generations. Why didn't Hashem bring a Mabal sooner? If the world needed to be purified, if the world needed to be cleansed, the world needed to be changed, why didn't Hashem make that take place sooner? Why did it take so long? The answer is he gives a chance. So here's the next piece of good news about Shuvah. In case you didn't do it yet, you still have time. The famous story is told that the Hasidic uh, Rebbe of Nachon of Breslev once, he, he was walking by uh, late at night, a shoemaker, and he saw the shoemaker with a little bit of a candle. We don't even imagine what this is today. Today night is like day, you just flip the light on. In those days, you know, a little bit, it's very dark, there's a little tiny inch of wax left, and he's quickly sewing up a shoe. So Nachman said to him, what are you doing? So he said, as long as the candle burns, I can still fix. So he, he took this as a beautiful lesson. He said, the candle is the neshama. As long as the candle burns, you can still fix things. You can still do tshuva. And Hashem has lots of patience. He waits sometimes 40, 50, 60 years, waits for somebody to come home. He waits for a Jew to wake up and say, what are you doing? Where are you going? What have you spent your life on? Hashem waits. Why? Why? That's how Hashem is. Because the divine nature is slow to anger. And we see that graphically in ten generations that were deserving of punishment. The first sin followed by the first homicide followed by idolatry. God doesn't react. Eventually, the world had to be cleansed. Eventually it was hopeless. But a great deal of time was allowed for it. And the interesting thing is that Noah received the command to build the Teva. How many years before the Teva was actually built? Or before the floods actually came? Anybody know? 120 years. Yeah. God said to Noah, I want you to build a boat. He said, okay, fine, I'll go to the lumber store. Oh, no, no, says God. I want you to plant a forest. 
<laughs> what am I planting a forest for? You'll plant a forest so those trees should grow. And when the trees grow, you'll cut the wood down. Noah had to do everything by himself. Nobody else was allowed to participate. Why? So it would take 120 years. Everybody came to Noah and said, Noah, aren't you a banker? Why are you planting a forest today? He says, oh, let me tell you this story. God came to me yesterday. He says, it's going to be a flood. I'm a shigit of this. This guy's off his rocker. And, and the story got around and everybody talked about it. And Noah is busy watering his forest and taking care of his forest. And his forest grows up and then he becomes a lumberjack. He says, Noah, what happened to you? You changed his careers again? Midlife crisis? He says, no, God said it's going to be a flood. And then he finished being a lumberjack. Then he turned into a lumber manufacturer. He makes timber, and then when he finishes making timber, when he becomes a boat maker. And so this is how, for 120 years, Noah kept telling the people. Noah was the butt of jokes. He was in every one of those, uh, you know, Inquirer, National Inquirer newspapers for 120 years. Everybody was laughing at him. And Noah was, at the time of the flood, 600 years old. People, most people uh, got married and had kids by about 400, four, 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 400. People lived much longer at the beginning of creation, yes. It was a different kind of world. Uh, that, that happens to coincide but I don't think that's the reason it does happen to coincide though. so up to the flood what do we see the whole idea with Noah what did God look for opportunities what is Noah faulted for by the way Noah says he was a tzaddik but not such a big tzaddik he was kind of a tzaddik in his times and the Gemara says in his generation he was a tzaddik had he lived in the times of Ram and Moshe he wouldn't have been a noteworthy individual what did he do wrong he didn't make a difference if somebody asked him the question, he responded. He put up with all the, uh, the jokes and the funding made of him, but he didn't actively cultivate followers. He didn't actively teach people. Because if he would have actively worked on it, he could have saved at least one person. An entire generation, everybody wicked. Noah couldn't get through a single person. He didn't care if he got through. He did whatever God asked him to do. He was a tzaddik. Tzaddik meaning he was perfect. He did everything he was supposed to do. But as we discussed earlier, he was a tzaddik who had a great deal lacking. Because he could have done so much more. And he should have got the message. God's giving him a message. Noah, do something. I'm, I'm telling you, giving you exact instructions to go beyond. So it's like telling somebody, I want you to go, and uh, hire you as a salesperson, I want you to go and take care of a certain sale. So you went in there, came with your paper, you filled out the order, the form, you signed it, you left. The boss says, how'd you do? I did exactly what you told me to do. Did you sweet talk him? Did you give him some coffee? Did you tell him about our incredible new program? No. Did you say I should do that? Of course I didn't say. We want to see some initiative. So Hashem always leaves a little bit in the hands of people. A tzaddik like Noach is supposed to take initiative. He's supposed to really, really work at it. He didn't work at it. So Noach is lacking. But the point again is that Hashem made sure there should be a great deal of time because Hashem desires tshuva. The virtue of tshuva is so wonderful. Now after the flood, was everybody so nice? Even Noach's children. One of his children became a wicked, a bad boy. And then there was all kinds of wickedness. In fact, if you remember the Torah reading from a few weeks ago, right after the flood, what did the people get together and decide to do? They're going to make war on God. The, the new people, the children of Noah. Took a generation. Two generations. And all of a sudden there's people walking the earth. And then there was a very charismatic guy whose name was Nimrod. It says Nimrod was a mighty, mighty warrior. What was so mighty about him? Og Melachabashan, the great giant, was more, was more mighty. So Rashi tells us his might was that he had a very, very effective way to communicate. He could mesmerize people. His power of speech was his might. And with his power of speech, he managed to unite people into doing something very bad. Who else do we know in recent times that Hitler had incredible power of speech? Somebody once asked the Rebbe why he speaks out against a certain individual. 
who does very, is a very bad person. So I said to them, why do you have to react? So the Rebbe said, I lived in Berlin in 1937, and I saw how Hitler poisoned the youth. And therefore I learned the danger of talking, and the danger of not making, getting up and, and, and protesting. So he was a Hitler, this Ninimut. And what did he do? He convinced the people, a powerful, fiery speaker, who convinced everybody, united everybody in a war against God. And they made a calculation that just as there was a marble once, they knew about the marble. They said probably the heavens collapse every 1,400 years. So they said we have 1,300 years to work on building poles to hold the heaven up. Sounds ridiculous. That's why they started building a big tower. They were going to build the scaffolding. They said everybody's going to live in one place. This is the first mega city. The first urbanization. Everybody will live together. And they'll build a protective wall around themselves. And God won't be able to get them. They can do whatever they want. They'll be protected from God. So these are very wicked people. Because Hashem divided them. So Asara Darius, there was ten generations. From Noach until Avram. So it took ten generations until somebody finally came along and changed the world. This once again teaches us how much Hashem has patience. All generations doing wicked things. Hashem doesn't react until finally Avram Avinu comes. He receives their reward. So the obvious question is what do you mean Avram got their reward? What reward was there to be gotten? They were wicked people. They were idolaters. They hated God. So what kind of reward? And number two, how come Noach didn't get any rewards? It doesn't say Noach got the reward. It just says, till the days of Noach. So, the, the explanation is that there's a difference between the generation before Noach and the generations up to Avraham. And there's a difference between Avraham and Noach. What's the difference in the generation from the beginning of creation up until Noah? What type of sins they engage in? They were very sinful people. What were the sins? Think about what was the, the first sin that people did the Torah tells us about? Okay. Subsequent Adam and Eve. Cain and Hevel. Murder. And then subsequent to that the Torah tells us there was theft, there was murder, there was rape. This was the common sense. So they hurt each other. There was abuse. The power of human beings, they overpowered the, the rich and the powerful, overpowered the weak and the defenseless. And there was a great deal of suffering amongst people. And God says, this is a kind of evil that I can't countenance and eventually the world has to be cleansed. The generation that followed after the flood, what was their sin? Did they hate each other? On the contrary, it says they were united. They all spoke the same language. They had common ideals. Their fight was against God. In a certain way, because they loved each other, because it was a free, open, friendly society, they had a certain reward. It wouldn't go to them, but they garnered a certain reward. Whereas the Bartanura tells us that every single person is born with a portion of Gehenim and a portion of Gan Eden. It's like when you come into the, into the uh, casino, they give you a bunch of chips. You start off with chips. You can gamble your chips away. Or you could make a profit off your chips. So everybody got a certain amount of chips. All the chips that they had, they didn't gamble it away. Only it wasn't theirs. They couldn't lay claim to it, but they didn't destroy it. Why? Because they were good to each other. They weren't good with God. That's a problem. But the fact is, they were kind amongst each other. And therefore, they had a reward. But Avraham Avinu was able to come and claim it. Now why was Avraham Avinu able to claim a reward with Noah couldn't? The difference is there as well. Did Noah care about everybody else? No. He didn't care. Why should he get rewarded? Avraham Avinu devoted his life others. 
And therefore, Abraham Avinu is deserving that he should come along and take their reward. So here is a beautiful lesson that we can all uh, leave with today. We live in a society that is not so godly. Anybody take umbrage to that statement that our society is not so godly? Religion is not the hottest item today. No question about it. Right? It doesn't sell as well as other things. And we live in a society that is in many ways reverting to pagan ideals. We have the, the new liberal type of attitude where everything goes but God and but religion. But otherwise everything is acceptable. And returning to a redefinition of marriage which is from Sinai. The definition of marriage comes from the Torah. Prior to Sinai, this was the definition of marriage. They had same-sex unions and different-sex unions and all kinds of unions that were sanctified. But they had priests of every type of color and stripe that would sanctify whatever you wanted for them. And today, we're not going back. It's not progressive. It's regressive. We're just going back to the pre-Torah days. And that's the society we live in. Modesty is a thing of the past. Where we talk about the monogamy. Who are kind of monogamous? The President of the United States do whatever he wanted. Everybody does whatever they want. Right? We live in a society which is not a very moral place today. On, on one hand. On the other hand, you take a look at the Muslim society. These basic ideas, they seem to be very righteous. Right? They worship God with absolute devotion. They spend half the year fasting. And they're, they're absolutely puritanical in their sexual practices. And somebody, you know, behaves the wrong way. is missing his head five minutes later. Right? They're absolutely... So are, are, they, are, they, are these people spiritual? I mean, like, it's like a scary thing. If there's a, if there's a God in the world and God is looking at two societies that are facing off, Western society versus the, the Islamic society, who's going to come out on top over here? So take a look. Which generation would they be like? The generation before the Mabu or generation after the Mabu? generation before the Mabu was not spiritual. Pardon me. They were spiritual. They didn't fight with God. They didn't fight with God. It, it wasn't an issue of God. But they were horrible towards their fellow humans. They murdered and they killed and they raped and whoever had a bigger gun did whatever he wanted. Exactly the way it is in the Muslim societies. These are people that preach murder and death and destruction. Anybody doesn't believe like them. And they preach in the name of God. There's no tolerance. There's no diversity. There's no democracy. There's no respect to human rights. These things don't exist over there. All that exists is allegiance to God. So what happened to the first ten generations of the world? They were destroyed. The second ten generations are they destroyed? No. Did they get reward for tolerance, for democracy, for diversity, for human rights? Did they get reward for it? There was a reward generated because it was a just and a, and a good society. And we live in the free world which is a just and a free society. It is a good society. We do try to provide for people. If people are not going to live spiritual, they won't get their reward. So those who will live spiritually, the Avraham Avinus amongst us, will be able to come along and take that reward. But ultimately, they are not deserving of destruction. When people preach murder, and they preach death and destruction, and no tolerance for anybody else, then they are deserving of a mabu. So in case you are getting worried that maybe the balance is tipping, this Mishnah teaches us that ultimately, the people who disrespect human rights are left with absolutely nothing, and they are destroyed. And those who respect human rights, that's a good thing and a positive thing, and not only do they not destroyed, but there is even a reward that is generated by it. Only if they're not going to be spiritual at all, they may not claim their reward. But ultimately, the society we live in is a good and a just society. We should thank God for that and do everything we can to support that and not try to diminish that or decrease that in any way, shape, or form. And the bottom line is, we should all do tshuva. Because if we all do tshuva, the Mashiach will come and there will be a world of peace for everybody.